Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history of racist policing, which is the foundation of our present racist policing, and Trump's authoritarian glee at the opportunity to consolidate violent racist power in response to protests against violent racist power. Clips today come from Throughline, Democracy Now!, The Tom Hartman Program, Code Switch, Behind the Bastards, The Daily Show, In the Thick, Intercepted, The Ezra Klein Show, Deconstructed, and On the Media. The story of policing in the northern United States actually begins across the ocean, in London. In 1829, British Parliament passed something called the Metropolitan Police Act, a bill that effectively created the first modern police force to oversee life within London's city limits. What made it different from previous types of law enforcement, patrols, local militias, neighborhood watch groups? Three main things. Their emphasis on crime prevention and control of communities, their strategy to maintain strong visibility in everyday life by patrolling the streets, and their militaristic structure with things like uniforms, rank designations, and a code of command and discipline. And before long, these ideas about policing began to migrate to cities across the northern U.S. And part of the context for early modern policing by the late 1840s was that the immigrant population of Europeans, particularly the Irish, were generating in their own way a similar kind of social anxiety, xenophobic, nativist, racist reaction to what African-Americans certainly were used to in the South with slave patrols and what antebellum Black folks had been used to uh, who were free in Northern cities in terms of being surveilled and controlled. The populations that made up early police officers were unlike these slave patrols, made up of lower-class men, often men who were first-generation Americans. Uh, there was a early emphasis on people whose status was just a tiny notch better than the folks who they were focused on policing. <laughs> and so the Anglo-Saxons are policing the Irish, or the Germans are policing the Irish, the Irish are policing the Poles. Black people are there, they're getting policed by everyone, but their numbers are fewer. And so this dynamic that's playing out is that police officers are a critical feature of establishing a racial hierarchy, even among white people. What also played out in early policing was political control, because police officers were often strong-arm enforcers of not only underground activities, um, they were very proximate to various forms of, of very blatant corruption, but they also were people who got people to the polls. They were the foot soldiers of political machines like Tammany Hall in New York, which was a democratic machine that had dominated New York politics for, for more than a century, and by the mid-19th century just extended its reach into the local New York police agency. So basically, they're not too far different from a gang. The fact that they were policing communities often had absolutely nothing to do with criminal activity. 
and a whole lot to do with policing racial groups, policing political enemies, policing corruption, all those things. And there's no way to separate the goodness of policing from the messiness of the context in which it's born. Hmm. Yeah. It's such an interesting parallel that you draw between, you know, when when the slave patrols were created to sort of control a certain group of people. And then, you know, in the North around the same time, this same ethos being applied, right? Like, like creating a force, a, a group that can oversee another group that they perceive as, you know, troublesome or whatever. Is that a fair parallel or is it too simplistic? No, it's, it's a really, uh, it, it's exactly the parallel that needs to be made. If we look at this from the moon or from 30,000 feet, what we see is that the function of police are to control essential workers in the early centuries of this country. The people at the bottom of the economic hierarchy were meant to be policed in ways that wasn't entirely about kicking them out of the country. That certainly wasn't true. Those immigrants were here precisely because they were expected to build the infrastructure of these modern cities, just like enslaved people were expected to drive the economy through cotton production and sugar production and tobacco production. So what police were doing were ensuring that these outgroups had minimal freedom beyond what was required for them to do their jobs. Police officers were built to police the poor, no matter who they were. That uh, I'm wondering, because this does not only affect, although it has, has largely uh, affected the African-American community, but it's also been this method of using law enforcement and policing as a method of domination has also been used with other people of color, specifically Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Native Americans. Uh, in 1862, President Lincoln ordered the hanging of 38 Dakota warriors who had gone to war against the U.S. in the midst of the Civil War. And they were hanged as criminals and as murderers, not as enemy combatants. And uh, I'm thinking of the Texas Rangers, uh, who were largely created to control and dominate Mexicans who were called bandits because they were defending their land. Uh, and even with Puerto Ricans, uh, from Albizu Campos to Oscar Lopez Rivera, all the freedom fighters were always branded as criminals and dealt with as criminals within the justice system. Uh, I'm wondering this whole issue of the territorial expansion of the country necessitating even more police uh, uh, repression on the on, on these uh, on these populations of color. Your your sense of it and in, in your historical studies. Listen, Juan, I mean, that the, the, the summaries and examples you just gave are incredibly important uh, because to take it back to the very beginning, uh, my colleague, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, who's written about the U.S. Border Patrol and its or origins um, in policing the movement of um, Mexicans coming to the country because the country wanted them here to work. Um, but she also describes that the 
the infrastructure of American colonial settlement, the, the very basis upon which the country literally expanded, as you say, the territorial expansion, was the jail. And she goes back to uh, the very beginning in the 1700s to what is now the city of Los Angeles, which used to be the Tonga Basin, uh, which used to be populated by indigenous populations. And she said it was precisely the introduction of the physical jail as the instrument of control and domination, but a domination that was always rooted in harnessing the labor power of people, not to exterminate or to exclude them altogether, but to ensure that their labor would be extracted for the purposes of work and then everything else would be controlled, that their freedom would be con con uh, constrained. And that story is the story of every group in every part of the country whose labor power was the most important contribution that they would make. Their civil liberties, their civil rights, their human rights, their humanity itself was optional was secondary. Their right to political dissent was secondary. So you could look at Chinese immigrants in San Francisco in the 1880s and see the same story. You can look in Chicago in the midst of the labor upheavals of the 1890s with foreign-born immigrant whites demanding fair treatment in the workplace and see the same story. You can look at Texas and look and, and see the story of the Texans Rangers, which enforced literal white property theft of Tejano and Mexican descendant landowners, people who not only had once been part of Mexico before the Mexican Revolution and before the annexation of Mexico by the United States in 1848, but people who were law-abiding, respectable citizens in their communities. And white settlers showed up and, and essentially accused them of false crimes, criminalized them, and Texas Rangers um, enforced that. So across time, across space, and across groups, policing has a tortured history of being enforcers of various forms of domination. Uh, looking through some news stories the other day and saw this amazing piece uh, by Dr. Jacoba Williams, a cultural economist with the Economic Policy Institute, EPI, with their program on race, ethnicity, and the economy. EPI.org is their website. Um, uh, the title was Black Left's Deaths at the Hands of Law Enforcement Are Linked to Historical Lynchings. I found this just extraordinary. Uh, Dr. Williams is uh, on the line with us. Uh, Dr. Williams' uh, Twitter handle is at J-H-A-C-O-V-A. Jacoba. Uh, Dr. Williams, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us and, and for this extraordinary uh, uh, research. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I suppose at a certain level, it makes sense that those communities that historically have lynched African-Americans uh, more frequently than others, shall we say, uh, would mm -hmm. have more deaths at the hands of law, black deaths at the hands of law enforcement officers right now. But what a shocking connection um, between then and now. Uh, or is it not at all shocking? Is this simply the modern version of lynching? People, you know, I think are correctly referring to what these uh, Minneapolis police did to George Floyd as a lynching. What say you? And what does your research say? Oh, I said. Yeah, no, I definitely say that it is a modern day lynching. Um, so one thing I always like to talk about with people is just to discuss what is a definition of a lynching. I think that people think that lynchings are defined by time, 
but they aren't. Uh, they have four characteristics. The first is that there's evidence that someone was killed. The second is that someone was killed illegally. Uh, the third is that three or more people participated in the killing. And the fourth is that um, they were claiming tradition to be serving tradition or justice. When you look at George Floyd's killing, what do you see? Video ev evidence of him being killed, someone kneeling on him until he suffocates, which is illegal. Four police officers participated in it, and they claim to be serving justice for a supposed $20 counterfeit uh, bill. Um, so it is modern-day lynchings. And so I wasn't surprised at all um, that this thing connected. It's appalling. Um, it's unfortunate, but I am happy that people are reading it. I'm happy that you invited me so that we can actually talk about what's going on and how it connects to the past. So, Dr. Williams, would it just be too simplistic or, or even facile to say that um, what we have here are communities where white supremacy, white racism, uh, white fear uh, you know, the various dimensions of, of, you know, why white people behave badly around this kind of, around race, um, mm -hmm. are just basically community traditions and, and mm -hmm. that, that needs, that's the, that's the point at which it needs to be attacked. That's the root that needs to be pulled up with this weed. Or is it something more, uh, less visible, less obvious, uh, a little more, uh, you know, sophisticated or, or complex, I guess would be the right word. I think both things are true. Um, and so you said at the beginning, I'm a cultural economist. And what that means is I uh, look at how uh, historical events continue to influence the economic and political behavior, in particular of black individuals in the South. Um, and what I, what I found in my research is that there is a tradition of racism. Racism persists um, over time. And that's what you're seeing in these counties. You're actually seeing that uh, these uh, counties that can be linked with lynchings, they also can be linked with low voter turnout amongst blacks. You see that uh, er these areas also have a higher percentage of blacks who are killed by police officers. Um, and I don't think that this is a coincidence. Uh, I think the good thing about this research is that it highlights um, that, hey, there is something called racism. It does persist over time. Um, it is. It has been a, a part of tradition. It's been a part of the culture um, in certain communities. And once we identify it, we next need to identify how do we stop it. And I think the first thing mm -hmm. is talking about it. Um, actually just saying that, yes, history matters. I always say, if you look at my Twitter, uh, the first thing that I tweeted was that history matters. And I think a lot of times we want to shy away from history, but we have to confront it. Um, and I think we have to work with people like myself, economists, academics, uh, grassroots organizations, uh, people in law enforcement. And we need to come up with some type of remedy for this issue that's called racism. When the protests first started, we talked on the podcast about this feeling that we have been here before. Mm -hmm. You and I have been covering Reese together for the past seven years, and so the George Floyd video and the first couple of days of protesting, it all felt like deja vu. As did so much of the official response to the unrest. Groups of outside radicals and agitators are exploiting the These agitators, uh, we know they come in from the outside. Uh, many come from outside the state even. Uh, we've got groups and traveling from outside of cities, outside of states to come and be part of protests. I'm and engage in looting. Best estimate right now that I heard is about 20% is what we think are Minnesotans, and about 80% are outside. 
Outside agitators, those mysterious wrongdoers who come in from out of town to stir up trouble. But the long lens of history brings into focus a very different view of those labeled as outside agitators. They're speaking truth to power and trying to upend the status quo in various ways. That's Peniel Joseph. He's the founding director of the LBJ School's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. And professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. For those of y'all that just started rocking with us at Code Switch, we occasionally have a feature called Word Watch in which we examine words that pop up in the culture that have some kind of racial connotation to them. On this episode, we're digging deep into this notion of the outside agitator because, as Peniel told us, it's as old as America's original sin. And while slavers may not have used that exact outside agitator terminology, they absolutely did use the trope of that term to describe abolitionists. Harriet Tubman, John Brown, Frederick Douglass, to describe those folks who were anti-slavery and pushing for an end to racial slavery. Peniel Joseph says the most famous and recognizable use of outside agitator happened later, in the 20th century during the Red Scare. Probably the high point of the idea of an outside agitator working as an effective tool of repression is going to be during the start of the Cold War. So we think about the the era of McCarthyism, the early 1950s, the idea that if you are a civil rights activist and if you are pushing for interracial democracy and an end to racial segregation, you are a communist, you are a Marxist, you are somebody who wasn't authentically American and you were trying to do something that was subversive and anti-American and anti-patriotic. This category of outsider is politically useful. It expands and it shrinks to grant legitimacy to some people or take it away from others. And the anti-communist sentiment of the early 20th century, it made outsider status doubly effective against Black folks who were already a pariah class. And that even included people like Paul Robeson, the entertainer of the 1940s who went from super famous to infamous after his extensive anti-capitalist and civil rights organizing garnered him the label outside agitator. Paul Robeson's passport is revoked for almost a decade. Um, He loses his livelihood. But white people lost a lot, too, who were on the left. And this is the whole idea of people naming names at the House Un-American Activities Committee. In the 1950s, the height of the Red Scare overlapped with the civil rights movement. These days, we hear public officials quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., while at the same time condemning outside agitators for burning things or looting. But back then... Dr. King was the outside agitator. Now, the best thing for King to do is to get out of Alabama as quickly as he can because he's a menace to the peace of this city. He is, he is the greatest of all the agitators or the worst of all the agitators in this country. He's from Atlanta. Why are you causing up trouble in Birmingham? Why are you coming to Mississippi? Basically, our Negroes were fine and happy till you came through and stirred everything up. But... King is able to repudiate the notion of being an outside agitator through his Christian faith. When we think about how Black civil rights activists tried to get away from this slur or smear of being called an outside agitator, that's when we see the church movement, 
the civil rights movement's heroic period from 1954 to 1965, one of the reasons why Martin Luther King Jr. is so effective is that up until the mid-60s, he pushes back against overtly talking about economic justice in part to not be smeared as a communist, as a Marxist, as an outside agitator. But Dr. King can't escape the outside agitator label. Peniel says it's back to haunt him in 1967. When he speaks out against the Vietnam War and starts organizing for economic justice, fair housing, and jobs with Black welfare rights activists. He wants to go for broke to get a guaranteed income and to march on Washington, occupy Washington, because King is the organizer of the first Occupy movement. It was Washington, D.C., and not Wall Street in the spring of 1968. And he's saying, we are going to stay in Washington, Resurrection City, multiracial, multicultural, revolutionary democracy and shame this nation into doing the right thing. And they ask him, when are they going to leave? And he says, never. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated two months before the Poor People's March on Washington. And exactly a year to the day after he gave that speech denouncing the Vietnam War. In your Guardian piece, Professor Anderson, you write, our current Attorney General Bill Barr does not appear to see injustice. Instead, he sounds much like his ancient predecessor, A. Mitchell Palmer. Explain. So A. Mitchell Palmer was the Attorney General uh, during 1919, the red summer of 1919. And there you had an eruption of anti-Black violence as Black veterans are are coming back from World War One, their their military uh, uh, work in the military as soldiers so disrupted what was the 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 hierarchy of power because it was like wait a minute they think they're citizens now so you saw this violence erupt where black people were hunted down and killed one of the the most horrific cases was in Elaine Arkansas. And that is where blacks were um, uh, mobilizing to unionize because their wages were being stolen. You had this massive group of sheriffs and vigilantes and the U.S. Army coming in and just massacring black people. The A. Mitchell Palmer didn't see that. What he saw instead of people fighting for their constitutional rights He said, these are these left-wing radicals. These are communists. And it launches what would become known as the Red Scare, this hunt for communists in every kind of movement for equality. What you see with Bill Barr by raising up this fictive Antifa organization that is out to destroy all that is good and right in America where they can't even identify what the Antifa organization is. And Antifa stands for anti-fascist, fighting the fascist. But what we do have is the, the violence of the right wing, the violence where you have armed men storming into the Michigan state capitol and threatening to kill the governor and yelling at law enforcement, but somehow that's not 
the, the, the kind of violence that Bill Barr is concerned with. So you get this mobilizing of federal forces to knock out progressive forces that are fighting for equality by using the threat of some outside agitator, some terrorist group. For A. Mitchell Palmer, communist. For Bill Barr, Antifa. This outside agitator trope, it's back. (laughs) It's very similar in a lot of ways. But one thing that jumped out to me this time around that I I didn't see during Ferguson is this whole white boys with skateboards as outside agitators. It it definitely feels like there's more left-leaning officials saying things like, white boys are making you do this. Don't fall for this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very, very interesting because on some levels, it's that trope of saying, my Negroes are happy. My Black people um, are fine and I can talk to my Black people. The only reason I'm having trouble is that either a new inauthentic set of Black people have come and brainwashed my Negroes or... Uh, uh, this this trope of you know don't listen to the white skateboarders or the anarchists who are who are trying to fool you um, into pipe dreams that'll never become a political reality. To that point, I would love to just read you this Facebook post I came across while I was prepping for this. Uh, it was written by Jaleel Mustafa Bishop on May thirtieth. Here we go. I know y'all want to believe it's. All just white people burning and breaking shit. Just, protested, just protested in Philly, in Philly for, five for five hours. hours. Black, people inten- Black people intentionally said, we are not taking this to the hood. Turned the whole entire march around and took it downtown. Black people smashed windows. Black people broke into stores. Black people flipped cars. Black people threw items from said stores at cops. And Black people fought back. And guess what? None of this was even close to the scale of violence that white people and their police force inflict on us every day. White anarchists did start those damn fires, though, but we cheered them on. Stop taking away black people's agency. We are destroying shit because we're done with the bullshit. And I posted this because I wanted to capture this moment where everyone was trying to erase what I saw as black people's intentionality and strategy around violating um, white property and black people's willingness to be directly confrontational with police and really the the state and the local governments and what this erasure was happening through constantly trying to portray this image of white people co-opting black people's movements, black people's marches. What does this do to take away the agency of black protesters and organizers? Well, I think that when you shift the focus and the conversation to anarchists or white young men causing havoc in a way that is seemingly disconnected to the core roots of the protests, which are protests for not just Black Lives Mattering, but to end white supremacy, to end institutional racism, to institutionalize Black dignity and citizenship, it does take away from Black agency in that sense. What are the roots behind these massive uh, disruptive protests that are 
mostly peaceful. Um, why are people taking to the streets in these unprecedented numbers? Why has the NFL uh, suddenly changed course after players say, look, I could have been uh, George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery? Why are we seeing this sea change just even rhetorically when a few years ago, even amidst Black Lives Matter, when Kaepernick took the knee, people were punishing him for taking the knee? So we've transformed that in a matter of two weeks. But when you focus on saying it's the skateboarders or it's the white boys or um, the, these white folks are, are crashing windows and you don't focus on the, you know, uh, uh, infinite number of whites who are actually peacefully demonstrating and protesting from uh, New York City all the way to London and Berlin and around the world in these sympathy demonstrations, you're robbing black folks of their agency. One thing, just thinking about like what Shamir was just saying and this moment we're in, it's like, okay, what does it even mean in 2020 to be an outsider in these movements, right? Because one of the part of the story yeah. of uh, of of all the stuff we've been seeing, um, this, this sort of meta story that we call Black Lives Matter, is all of these what, what used to be local catastrophes, right? Of black people being killed by the police, are national. It's national news now, right? It's global news in some cases, right? You know, this reminds me of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. again, in terms of King talking about the world house and making this argument that we were all mutually linked in a single garment of destiny, as he put it. So uh, this idea that there is no more inside, outsider status, I think in a lot of ways, that's very true. And I think you're seeing this with so many different people uh, responding to the murder and public execution of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and saying that they can find their own stories in the stories of those Black lives that were taken prematurely because of state-sanctioned violence, racism, white supremacy. So we are at a tipping point, and I do think this is an inflection point, and we can all feel it and see it, um, that we're at one of those crossroads in American and global history where we can choose a different direction. There is a reason that American cops are particularly aggressive. And a big part of this reason is the special training courses offered by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, the Bulletproof Mindset courses. Um, so <sighs> Officer Yanez, who we talked about earlier, is the guy who killed Philando Castile. He had attended a Bulletproof Mindset course in 2014, two years before he murdered Castile. More than a 100 police departments in the U.S. and thousands of officers, perhaps tens of thousands, have taken Grossman's courses over more than 20 years. His teachings have made their way into mainstream Hollywood blockbusters. Um, he is probably it, it, it is said that he's probably trained more American cops than any other single person. Um, he is he is the most influential single police trainer in the United States. So that's who we're talking about today. Um, so he must be very proud. We have. Yeah, we're we're fortunate that we have the entirety of the Bulletproof Mindset course book that police in uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's class take. Um, uh. And we have this thanks to the same heroic journalists who are currently documenting the um, everything that's happening in, in Minneapolis, Unicorn Riot. And if you haven't already and you have any spare money, go donate some cash to Unicorn Riot right now. They're the ones fucking 
they should get a Pulitzer for how they've covered this. But they also got a hand of a, co- a hold of a, a scanned copy of this textbook, which they uploaded for to the internet for everyone to see. And it includes like the notes that the cop taking the course took during the course, which is really interesting because you get to see what this guy, you know, this is a course book that's like follow along notes. So we don't know exactly what Grossman said in his lecture, although I found other articles written about his lectures, so we've, we've got some of that in here, too. Um, but we do know, like, what this officer was taking out of the course, or what whoever was taking this course was, like, was like learning from it. Um, and that lets us piece together, like, what this guy is saying to police and what police are actually taking home from it. Um, so to start us off, I want to read how Lieutenant Colonel Grossman describes his own backstory in the first page of his training gr- document. Quote, Yes. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman retired from the Army after 23 years' experience leading U.S. soldiers worldwide. Today, he is the director of the Killology Research Group. He is an internationally recognized scholar, soldier, speaker, and one of who is one of the world's foremost experts in the field of human aggression and the root cause, cause of violence and violent crime. Grossman is a former West Point psychology professor, professor of military science, and an Army Ranger who has combined his experiences to become the founder of a new field of scientific endeavor, which has been termed Killology. That can't be real, Robert. That, <laughs> I mean, that's not a thing. I'd also like to point it's out certainly... that he does look exactly like what you would picture in your head, just so yeah. you guys know. It's it's certainly not a real field of scientific endeavor, but he absolutely calls it killology, and he somehow does that killology. without collapsing in on himself. Um <laughs> Now, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman has been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, uh, which sounds more impressive than it is because you can nominate yourself. Uh, it's actually pretty easy to get nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, I don't know that he did. I don't know who nominated him. Um, his books are legitimately very popular. They're in like part of the training for the FBI Academy. Uh, they're in like the Marine Corps Commandant's Required Reading List. Uh, on Killing and On Combat are, are the two big books by Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. I'm going to start off by quoting uh, from a write-up of him in Men's Journal that kind of talks about um, what he believes. Quote, On Combat, is probably, which is his most famous book, is probably best known for his assertion that people can be divided into three groups, sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. And it's the sheepdogs, oh, blessed with like the this. gift of aggression, as he says, who are responsible for protecting the sheep from the wolves. The analogy has been adopted mm-hmm. by various military and gun rights groups. And Clint Eastwood's American Sniper, the father of Navy SEAL Chris Kyle, gives a fictional din- dinner table lecture about sheepdogs taken directly from Grossman's writings. So... This guy's attitude is very influential. Um, and it, yeah. Uh, so that's oh, interesting. Always the smartest and most accurate views of humanity that start out with the phrase, now there are three types of people. <laughs> yeah, uh, you that, can categorize going, every you're, human being you're gonna into get. three groups. <laughs> I am a serious academic. Mm-hmm. Is going yeah, to be I mean, nuanced. I, I am I am famous, Jack, for my assertion that all of humanity can be divided into two groups, uh, people who are literally Adolf Hitler and everyone else, um, which is <laughs> right. both which is impossible true. to argue with and meaningless. Are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So as as that might key you in on that paragraph, Grossman is more of a pop psychologist than an academic. He tries to portray himself as a scientist, but he is not approaching this scientifically. You can't scientifically lump people into sheep, dogs, sheep, and wolves. <laughs> it's just not the way yeah. things work. Freud's um, famous theory of the sheep, dog, sheep, and wolves. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
so I, I've heard him compared to like a right wing militant Malcolm Gladwell, and that's not mm. far off. Um, his research <laughs> is distinctly unscientific. For on combat, mm. he gathered his information via what he called an interactive feedback loop, which is what everyone else would just call interviewing a bunch of guys who have been in combat, which is fine, mm-hmm. but like it's not an interact. You're you're talking to people with relevant experiences. Just just say interactive you interview people. Feedback loop. Fucking. Christ, dude. Um, no, so he says he interviewed a thousand soldiers and cops uh, using no particular and and then took what he'd learned from them using no particular scientific method or rigor and boiled it down into his book about killing and books about killing and combat. Now, again, it's not necessarily a bad thing to talk to a thousand people who have been in combat or killed people and write a book about it. But the way he has done it is not science. Like there's no control group. There's no attempt. There, there's no attempt to rigorously actually learn anything from this. He's just sort of talking to people and giving you what he thinks about it, which is, again, Question. fine, but not science. Yeah. Question. When was this book published or released? Well, not uh, the, like published. The, the, the 90s. Yeah. Like the 90s, I think. 80s or 90s. Yeah. In one interview, when da, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman was asked for his qualifications, he cited the, quote, body of information I've crafted over the years and his ability to speak from the heart, noting that I truly am one of the best people on the planet in a couple of areas, whether it's preparation for a life and death event or walking the sheepdog path. I really feel like I'm the preeminent authority. He is the preeminent uh-huh. authority on the thing he invented. Oh, the thing that the jumble of words he just slammed together. And again, a huge number of the police in Minneapolis right now, if not the vast majority of them, have taken this guy's course. So keep that in mind as we and also it's if just... you wind up in the streets in the next couple of days, very good chance your cops too took this guy's course. <laughs> yeah. Be cool. careful, people. Much of Grossman's analysis is based on a series of studies conducted after World War II and through the Vietnam era. And the, the short summary of these study, studies is that researchers after World War II found that U.S. soldiers in combat only shot at the enemy like 15 or 20 percent of the time. Most troops would fire above the enemy's heads or pretend to fire anything they could do to avoid actually killing somebody. And so the military had to create a rigorous new training method to teach soldiers to aim and shoot at human bodies automatically without thinking. And by Vietnam, you know, po- soldiers who were trained properly no longer hesitated before shooting at human beings and this research is very famous it is cited by a lot of folks outside of grossman i'm not going to get into this in detail because the veracity of it is heavily debated and there are a lot of reasons to question those old world war ii studies a lot of people who will say they're bogus i'm it's too much of a topic for us to get into now what's important is that grossman believes it i found in a 2004 pbs interview with him uh in which he really lays out his mindset on this and i want to remind you all he's talking about this because he views what he's saying as a good thing that he does as a positive service that he provides to cops quote Prior preparation is that one variable in the equation that we can control ahead of time, and one of the key things is embracing the responsibility to kill. Modern training makes you kill without conscious thought. We are making it possible for people to kill without conscious thought. And frankly, and frankly, at the moment of truth, they need to be able to do that. Those who are not Jesus properly trained are going Christ. to be killed, killed. And so we're teaching them to kill without conscious thought. And they, at an unconscious level, at the muscle memory level, uh, reflex level have grasped killing gun shoot he's dead 
I can trick your body into killing, but if your mind is not ready to come along on this ride, who's the next victim? You are. I have tricked your body into doing something that your mind is not ready to do. So when I teach, one of the things I believe we need to do is embrace this word kill. You will read a hundred military manuals and you'll never see the word kill. It's a dirty four-letter word. It's an obscene word. And yet it's what we do. Assuming there's no stress inoculation in a normal human being, at the moment when you want to fire, the forebrain shuts down, the midbrain takes over, and you slam head-on into a resistance to killing your own kind. The only way to overcome that resistance is through operant conditioning, to make killing a condition reflex. And we've done that. That's the worst. (sighs) That's real bad. (laughs) horrifying it's it's human engineering like behavioral engineering to murder on behalf of the people who are designed who whose function in this like according to the social contract is to protect yes that is exactly what it is contradiction that's all horrible to me um and I, i i might say that anyone bragging about doing that to people's heads um, especially the heads of people whose job is to protect and interface with members of the community, that seems incredibly irresponsible. Um, and Grossman himself yeah. in this interview with PBS even acknowledges that his trainings can fuck up the heads of the police who take his advice. Quote, if we haven't prepared ourselves emotionally for the act ahead of time and we just tricked you into killing, the magnitude of the trauma can be significant because we're having to live with something your body says is not right and you don't want to do and you were simply huh. tricked into killing. <laughs> David! Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, so David. So the thing you don't want to do. <laughs> we tricked you into it, and that fucks your head up. I'm going to make this my entire life. I'm going to make doing this my whole... Like, it's one of those things, again, this like, is not the time to show... It. In, yeah. <laughs> this is clearly not the time to express sympathy with cops, but he is talking about gaslighting and emotionally abusing police officer, abusing police officers. Like, that is what he's doing. He's, he's talking very directly about that. He's bragging. Um, yeah. It's not good. Like, it's not good. I am I'm taking a firm anti-killology stance here, Jack. Yeah. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that, and that's why we expect to begin to see a drop in our Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the U.S., U.K., and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. You know, with all these protests sweeping across America, 
people have been comparing this moment to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And much like the 1960s, law enforcement officers have met these calls to end police brutality with even more police brutality. Across the country, peaceful protests have too often devolved into standoffs with heavily armed police using military-style tactics. Flashbangs, tear gas, rubber bullets, helicopters, armored vehicles. Law enforcement in riot gear approach a barrier. Protesters on the other side, hands up in the air, chanting, don't shoot. But that's exactly what they did, shooting tear gas and rubber bullets. The threat of terrorism after 9-11 convinced many departments to stock up. Now, those departments are facing off against their own citizens. Just take a moment to think about that. The police department got this heavy-duty equipment to fight terrorists. That's why they got the equipment, post 9-11. And now they're using it against Americans who are exercising their right to protest. And I'm, I'm sorry, what about these people screams terrorists to you? Like, maybe I've forgotten my history, but I don't remember the part where Al-Qaeda attacked America with cardboard signs. And an argument I've heard some people make is that the only reason the police are doing this is because the protesters are looting or being violent. That's what they say. No, they're doing this because the people are violent. But as happens so often, the police's story never matches the actual footage. Because for the past week, the internet has been full of videos of police officers attacking protesters with no provocation whatsoever. Caught on camera from coast to coast, alleged excessive force by police officers. Attacks against protesters who were demonstrating against police brutality. In New York, police drove a vehicle into a crowd of people protesting there. In Los Angeles, police swing batons at people who witnesses say were simply standing with their hands up. A New York police officer caught on camera pushing a woman who was demonstrating. An officer pulling a man's face mask off and spraying him with pepper spray. This unsettling image of an officer kicking a woman who was maced. Caught on camera, a protester run over by an HPD mounted patrol unit at the height of the protests. We as black people deal with this every day. Black and brown people are treated brutally every day. I don't care who you are. Those images have to be upsetting to watch. Because these images are the antitheses of what America is supposed to stand for. Right? This is supposed to be the country where you have the freedom to say whatever you want. A democracy. Right? You can say whatever you want, whether it's Black Lives Matter or let's all drink bleach. The government is not supposed to physically punish you for that. And that hasn't always been the case in America, but that is the ideal. Right? When people were protesting in Michigan, saying that they want to go out, they want to go back to work, they want to get haircuts, they don't care about the coronavirus, they weren't getting beaten up. And that's what America is, the freedom to protest. And the freedom to protest isn't the only American ideal that the police have been trying to suppress lately. It seems like they've been really making a concerted effort to go after the free press. More than 300 journalists have faced press freedom violations. Across the United States, the camera is rolling when law enforcement seem to be targeting journalists. Whoa. I am press. Please. <laughs> <laughs>
we identified ourselves as press and they um, fired tear gas canisters on us at point blank range. This Australian cameraman and reporter were shoved and hit while live on air. Police now advancing on Oh my gosh, what they were I'm getting shot, I'm getting... In Louisville, pepper balls fired at a crew on live TV. Okay. Who were they aiming that at? At us, like directly at us. Yeah. Those videos are what's happening in America right now. Cops are just openly firing tear gas and pepper bullets and everything on journalists. And I mean, I can't blame them. If I was doing the shit that the police have been doing, I wouldn't want anyone recording it either. So... The police are attacking unarmed protesters, defenseless reporters. I mean, at this point, you might be wondering, is there anyone, is there anyone non-threatening enough that the police would not get violent with them? And what we're learning is that the answer is no. A Salt Lake City police officer in full riot gear using his shield to push an elderly man with a cane. The man falls face first onto the ground. Two officers in Buffalo, New York, pushing a 75-year-old man who falls to the ground, hits his head, and starts bleeding. None of the officers in the video appear to help him. I don't care how many times I see that video, I will never get used to it. Because it's bad enough that these cops push an old man who's walking over to them. But the fact that they walk over him, they walk past him while he's bleeding out on the sidewalk. Like, who are you protecting and serving if not that old man? And think about it. These were just two that were caught on video. Now, as usual, when videos like this come out, the excuse is always the same. People always want to defend those police by saying, those are just a couple of bad apples. That is not, that is not a signifier. That is, that is not representative of the entire police department. The only issue is that argument falls apart when you see what happened after they pushed this old man to the ground. A police statement released before the footage was posted online said only that a man tripped and fell. But after the video surfaced, the police commissioner ordered an internal affairs investigation and the immediate suspension of the officers without pay. As the officers leave the courthouse, cheers from a crowd of fellow officers and law enforcement. In another show of support, all 57 members of the Buffalo Emergency Response Team resigned, but they remain on the police force. Think about this for a second. Not only did the police department try to cover up what happened, not only did they try and lie about something that we all saw on camera, but once the truth got out and those cops were punished, the entire team resigned to protest those police being held accountable. In fact, they even showed up at the courthouse to cheer them on as they came out. What are you cheering? That Buffalo is finally safe? from old men walking around in public? What are you cheering? What are you cheering? The fact that you've come out? The fact that you stay... Like, it's a scary thing to think about. What are they cheering for? And something I think people need to understand about the police is that, in a way, they have the same code that a gang does. In that, above all, you are loyal to your crew. That is a culture that is within every police department. And that's the heart of this issue. If good police are willing to look the other way or even join in when the bad police abuse their powers, you can make new rules and regulations all you want, but it won't matter. America's not going to be able to fix this problem until we have police 
whose first priority is protecting and serving the people instead of protecting and serving themselves. Karen, you have been killing it in terms of your writing. So I really want to just point out this one particular column that you wrote about, oh, yes. which basically was your piece of how the United States would report on this if they were reporting about this uprising in another country. So it's the voice of an American journalist reporting on this happening in someplace else. Yeah, I'm going to do my best satire read. <laughs> so you write, and I'm quoting. The country has been rocked by several viral videos depicting extrajudicial executions of black ethnic minorities by state security forces. Uprisings erupted in the northern city of Minneapolis after a video circulated online of the killing of a black man, George Floyd, after being attacked by a security force agent. Trump took to Twitter, calling black protesters thugs and threatening to send in military force. Sure. We get it that black people are angry about decades of abuse and impunity, said G. Scott Fitz, a Minnesotan and member of the white ethnic majority. But going after a target crosses the line. Can't they find a more peaceful way like kneeling in silence? <laughs> yeah, really. Like, <laughs> I mean, I love that. I love the notion of the northern city of Minneapolis, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and it's true. I mean. Viral videos of extrajudicial executions of black ethnic minorities by state security forces. Mm -hmm. Factual. Yeah. So, Karen, um, there's been a lot of conversation. Also, shout out to the New York Times journalists who got what's his name? The um, uh, opinion page editor who had to resign because James of Bennett. Yeah, that guy. Mm -hmm. um, see ya. So there's a lot of conversation about the power of black journalists in particular right now in this moment, especially in terms of being on the front lines and covering this. So, so all well and good, but there are lots of challenges that come with that. So what's coming up for you? I'm really like, even the piece that I, that I wrote, like I'm very particular about that language is a battlefield in a way mm. and how, how we describe things. I mean, I think that's a large part of, you know, I don't do those satires often. Honestly, the last time I did that or felt in so much despair <laughs> that I felt like I could only laugh at, at the trauma was um, after Charlottesville. Wow. And in those pieces at the time, at least I was like, well, the international community is trying to sound the alarm. They're trying to do something. And this time with the pandemic and with just uh, the, the, the killings, I was just like, the international community has given up on America. Like, they don't know what to do. Nobody cares anymore because they're just so used to our issues and our problems. And so I think for me, like, um, I'm very conscious, like, when I say extrajudicial killings, because that's how we describe other countries. Yeah. Um, I'm, very, I'm very conscious when I say, you know, state security agents, because that's, you know, how exactly. we describe other right. countries. So right. even when you talk about tear gas, I mean, technically, it's a chemical agent, right? So Correct. Imagine it hits different when you say state forces deployed chemical agents to disperse civilians. Mm -hmm. It hits different. I'm very conscious of having words 
hit people. So, you know, when people talk about diversity, inclusion, I'm like, I hate those words now. They mean nothing. And honestly, right now, yeah, decades since the civil rights movement, I still say, I'm like, we're still working on desegregation, de facto desegregation. Like, we're we're still working on integrating our newsrooms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. what we're seeing now, you know, from the New York Times issue to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Mm -hmm. black journalist staging a virtual walkout and also leading to um, a member of senior leadership resigning. Because of that headline, Buildings Matter too. Like, what in the hell? Anyway. But I mean, uh, like literally, who not only thought of it, who wrote it, and then who allowed it to go to print? Like, all the way it has a pass through is just absolutely insane and absurd. There's something quite dark to me about the casual dismissal of Black Lives Matter. Of course, you know, they're, they're hopping on that and basically saying it's almost sarcastic. Like, it's almost it's yeah. this cavalierness yeah. to equating inanimate objects to human lives. There's something quite dark to me about that. They're just proving the dehumanization, right? That by doing it, you prove her. You know what I'm saying? So, and I think that's a big question, like not only you, Karen, but Chrissy in general, not only black journalists, but particularly black women talking about being in the moment in the context of civil rights and the Black Lives Matter movement. What are your thoughts about that? Because I also feel like black women are at the front of this in a lot of ways. Chrissy. Well, black black women are at the front of everything. We're the canaries in the mine. I mean, we can look at the black women in the civil rights movement and see all that they did. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's not surprising that Black Lives Matters, you know, founded by three black women. You know, we obviously have to include uh, black queer women in the discussion and black trans women now in the discussion of leadership. Um, and I think that it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable that these new movements don't have a clear, concrete male leader. Mm. And that's very destabilizing for some people because so much of black organizing has been through the church, the black church. Um, and it's been a, a very strong black leader that has been able to to you know be the face and the voice of a movement. But that's not the case. That is why I am taking immediate presidential action to stop the violence and restore security and safety in America. I am mobilizing all available federal resources, civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting, to end the destruction and arson, and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. We are, at this moment, in the midst of a brutal campaign of state-sanctioned terror and violence that is being unleashed against protesters who have risen up to demand an end to the police murder of Black people in this country. There are powerful and prominent figures in the United States right now who are trying to distract and deflect from the real crisis, the actions that sparked these rebellions. And that is the rampant murder of black lives that is encouraged and immunized from accountability by the federal, state, and local governments of this country. As we speak, I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, 
looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property. On Monday, Donald Trump threatened to deploy the U.S. military to crush these uprisings. He is telling governors that they have been too soft in confronting the protesters, and he said that they need to be violently dominated. And he makes these statements as police forces across this country are at this very moment operating as violent, racist posses with badges, hunting and beating people, macing people, using chemical agents to attack people, in some cases, killing protesters. Police and their civilian allies are increasingly using vehicles to attack demonstrators. The response from the state has made clear that violently crushing these protests is more important than stopping the murder of black people in this country by the very people who they claim are there to keep the peace. The state is sending a message that the stores of Walmart and McDonald's and Chase Bank are more important than the lives of black people. The horrifying murder of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis was a modern-day lynching. The officer murdered Floyd by handcuffing him and then strangling Floyd with his knee to the neck for more than eight minutes. I can't breathe here. Uh-huh. Bro, get him, get in the car, man. I will. Get him, get in the car. I can't move. I've been waiting the whole time, ah. man. Ah. Bro, get him, get in the car. Mama. Get up, get Mama. in the car. And it was the failure of the state to swiftly arrest and charge this officer that sparked this rebellion. Three of the officers involved have still not been charged. And while the police operate with near total impunity, more than 4,400 protesters have been arrested. Thousands more have been beaten and brutalized by police forces. But the roots of this crisis are much deeper than the events of the past weeks. It is the product of a white supremacist system that has told black people over and over that their lives do not matter and that their deaths will almost never find justice. We cannot ignore the history that precedes the murder of George Floyd. We cannot ignore the long history of rebellions sparked by racist murders in this country. We cannot ignore the unending legacy of militarized police that have terrorized black communities. We cannot ignore the tropes and lies and propaganda used throughout history to try to discredit the righteous anger that manifests in the streets. We must study all of this and use this history to inform our anger and our resistance and our solidarity. All of this is happening in the midst of a deadly pandemic. And the overwhelmingly young people who are at the forefront of these Black-led rebellions are sending a message that this racist system poses a greater threat to their lives than a shockingly deadly pandemic. Juxtapose that reality with the white, heavily armed mobs that descended on state houses to demand a reopening of their hair salons or their stores. The people that Trump cheered on from the White House. I'm viewing our great citizens of this country to a certain extent and to a large extent as warriors. They're warriors. We can't keep our country closed. We have to open our country. 
We are at a crossroads right now in this situation with the president acting as an authoritarian dictator, threatening to unleash the most lethal killing force the world has ever known onto the streets of U.S. cities to hunt down their own citizens. The presidential election is five months away. And what the people leading these rebellions and taking to the streets are saying is that we don't have five months to wait. The impunity must end now. The state murder of black lives must end now. now. Some commentators are reaching for examples from far off countries and their despots or dictators to explain this moment. But the history is right here in our own nation. Trump is not some foreign anomaly. He is firmly rooted in the racist history of this nation. He is a product of it. I had this question I knew that I was going to ask you about sort of the lineage here where Black Lives Matter and these kinds of protests and these kinds of videos, it, it doesn't begin under Trump, it begins under Obama. But I almost not want to reverse that here in what you just said. Do you think there's a way in which it's actually helpful that Donald Trump is a president right now? It like it sort of decomplicates the situation? No, no. No. I, I think it's enormously harmful, Ezra, because I think, you know, um, one of the things that 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 people forget, and look, Obama did you know a lot of things, obviously that you know we can you know disagree with and question, but probably the thing that I think about most that he really did successfully, I can't think of a presidency, maybe going all the way back to like Grant, that dealt with the way law enforcement deals in black communities than you know what Obama and to a great extent Eric Holder did. Um, the Ferguson report was historic uh, because the narrow way that, you know, politicians would have dealt with that, you know, before is to go in, you know, was the narrative true or not? And then release a very, you know, sort of thin, you know, report. But the expansive way it, it, it did, you know, looking into the police department, basically revealing them, you know, to be, you know, a little more than pirates coming into the black community and using the black community as a funding mechanism for this for the city government, the way we saw how that's you know not just true in Ferguson but true across the country, uh, the consent decrees that they entered into, the, the very fact is you know I think it was John Chait who wrote this just yesterday that the head of the FOP in Minnesota is a very vocal uh, uh, ally, you know to, to to Trump who you know valorizes uh, uh, police brutality. I don't want to go so far as to say George Floyd might be alive today if Obama was president. But, you know, uh, uh, the prosecutor, Mike Freeman, stood up there on that, on that first day and he criticized, you know, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore for bringing charges that ultimately didn't stick and didn't, you know, actually get the cops convicted. But, I, but you know, watching, it, it, watching everything go down this weekend, what occurred to me was what happened in Baltimore was Marilyn Mosby brought the charges. That you know, I can check the record, but my recollection is that, that was the last day of rioting and it didn't spread nationally because although she didn't successfully prosecute the cops, the community had a sense that it had somebody who was representing them, uh, who actually was hearing them, who actually had their interests at heart. And, you know, I think, I think it's worth grappling with why, for instance, the Eric Garner uh, protest didn't go, you know, the way this went. You know, uh, why it was that you know, uh, Ferguson basically, you know, for the most part, stayed in Ferguson and could be dealt with 
the way you know it, it's dealt with. Now, I think in in the, in the form of Trump and, and his allies, it's just a feeling that people won't be heard at all. And so this is what you know what you get. I'm not I'm not going to make this a Trump conversation, but I do want to hang mm-hmm. on him for one second here. Mm-hmm. I was watching the speech he gave before um, tear gassing the protesters um, in the park in DC, mm-hmm. and what so chilled me about that speech was how much he clearly wanted this. That like this was a presidency as he had always imagined it, like directing men with guns and shields to put down protesters so he could walk through a park unafraid and seem tough. Right. And he's just through this whole through actually his whole presidency, but certainly through coronavirus, he has seemed so ill at ease to me, just like so disinterested and annoyed by the actual work of being president. But like this is the thing that he wanted, that he seems energized and excited by. And that's been the 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 scary part of it to me that you have somebody in that role who is eager for escalation. Yeah, no, I mean, and that that to me is not so right. I mean, it's pretty clear that the war making, you know, violent part, you know, of head of state was always the part that that most appealed, you know, to to, to Donald Trump. But I, you know, even even in that, um, look, I, I, you know, there's a lot of you know thinking, you know, back and forth. Is this good? Is this bad? What what does this mean for for the election? I think it is significant and perhaps historic. Look, it may be true that Donald Trump will win. Maybe this will, you know, lead to some sort of white backlash that, you know, ultimately sees him, you know, uh, ultimately helps him. I, you know, I can't really call that. But what I will say is um, this is a massive denial of legitimacy. Donald Trump may win the election in November, but he will be a ruler and not a president. Um, and, and I think that, that, that those things need to be distinguished. Um, when all you have is force, when that when that's really all you have, and I mean like naked open force, calling out the military, you know, to repress uh, protests that are you know national, national, and not just in like not nationally just in ghettos and and, and in hoods, but literally nationally in cities across the country. When that's all you have, there's a denial of, of actual legitimacy uh, to being governed in in that. I mean, he'll be a a you know most likely if he wins. Someone who won with the minority of, 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 of the vote again. So two times, which will be a first in, in American history. And violence will be the tool by which, you know, he, he rules. I think that's a very, very different situation uh, uh, to be in. Here you see the Reichstag, the German House of Parliament in Berlin which has been seriously destroyed by fire. Hitler, now chancellor, has announced that the fire was the work of communists and was intended to be the signal for a Bolshevist uprising throughout the country. In consequence, Germany has been placed under a system of martial law, a decree having been signed which aims at the total destruction of communism. On February 27, 1933, the German parliament, the Reichstag, was burned down. Adolf Hitler, then in coalition government, used the fire to claim that the communists were planning a violent coup and passed an emergency decree permitting his government to arrest and detain political opponents without trial, to disband political organisations, to confiscate private property and to overrule state and local laws. That fire and the decree that followed paved the way for Hitler's Nazi dictatorship, for World War II, for the Holocaust. Now, I'm not suggesting Donald Trump is about to make himself Fuhrer and kill America's Jews, but I do want to ask whether the president is using the chaos and violence we're seeing on the streets of the US in recent days as an excuse, 
as an opportunity to seize more powers for himself, to crack down on his political opponents, to fan the flames of racial and ethnic division, to push his fascist, yes, fascist agenda. And of course, it's always risky to invoke the Nazis in any discussion about an authoritarian or a right-wing politician. I get that. My producer, Zach, and I were discussing whether or not to open the show with a Reichstag fire reference because people understandably get nervous when you make comparisons with the Nazis. There's a kind of rule on the internet, Godwin's Law, it's called, which for years has mocked people online for comparing their opponents to Hitler or the Nazis. But here's the thing. Even Mike Godwin himself, the guy who came up with that internet law, says it's fine to compare Trump to Hitler. It's fine to call him a fascist. I mean, if the shoe fits and all of that. And look, people have been calling Trump a fascist since before he was even elected, and not without reason. I mean, his entire presidential campaign was based on walling off one foreign group of people and banning another. He also incited violence at his rallies, threatened to lock up his political opponents, and claimed he alone could fix America's problems. And yet even some of his own critics have always thought the F-word was a step too far. Some liberals were busy downplaying the threat from Trump back in 2016, like the Washington Post's Catherine Parker, who claimed on the eve of the election that we'll be fine if Trump wins because, quote, he'll be held more or less in check by the House and Senate because that's the way our system of government is set up. Yeah, that take aged well. Some thought he was just all talk, a blowhard who wouldn't actually do anything to physically harm anyone. And yet... I wonder how many of those people still think he isn't a physical threat to us. He isn't a threat to democracy and the Constitution after the events of the past week. As the United States erupted in protest against police violence after the horrific killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and as police forces across the nation then brutally assaulted and shot at and ran over unarmed protesters and reporters on camera, on camera the president and his cronies decided to go into full fascist mode. First stop, the anti-fascists, of course. On Sunday, Trump tweeted, the United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. Despite the fact that he has no legal authority to do that. Despite the fact that Antifa isn't even an actual organization. And despite the fact that the FBI internally was saying Antifa had nothing to do with the violence. Then, on a call with governors on Monday morning, an angry president demanded they take tougher action against the protesters and exact, quote, retribution against them. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. You have to arrest people and you have to drive people. You have to dominate. You have to arrest people spoken like a true fascist. Remember, Trump is on record praising the Chinese dictatorship for being strong in its response to the Tiananmen Square protesters back in 1990. Republican Senator Tom Cotton, a Trump toady and ex-soldier, took to Fox News to make this chilling threat in support of the president. If local law enforcement is overwhelmed, if local politicians will not do their most basic job to protect our citizens, let's see how these anarchists respond when the 101st Airborne is on the other side of the street. Cotton also tweeted that the military should show, quote, no quarter to the anarchists, which is a phrase meaning 
take no prisoners, kill everyone. Later on Monday, in a speech at the White House, Trump ratcheted up his own rhetoric. These are not acts of peaceful protest. These are acts of domestic terror. Domestic terror, a phrase he never used to describe the massacres of Jews in U.S. synagogues by white supremacists, a phrase he never used to describe the pipe bombs sent to Democratic politicians by one of his supporters. But Antifa, who've never killed anyone? Domestic terrorists. Funny that. Trump then basically declared war on the American people. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. And as he spoke on the grounds of the White House, his attorney general, Bill Barr, whose nakedly authoritarian instincts we discussed on this show just a few weeks ago, ordered the police and other federal law enforcement agencies outside the White House to disperse to break up the crowds with smoke grenades, with rubber bullets, and what looked and felt like to the protesters and to the reporters there on the scene, like tear gas. Why? So that the President of the United States, who had been earlier mocked for hiding in the White House bunker, could have a photo op across the street in front of a church, holding a Bible. A Bible he's never read, by the way. Is that your Bible? The reporter asks. It's a Bible, Trump accurately replies. By the way, they even gassed an Episcopal priest to get him out of the way of the president's church photo op. As the old saying goes, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. Or as my good friend Eamon Moyudin over at MSNBC pointed out in a tweet, Just imagine what American politicians and the president would do and say if a leader of an Arab country brandishing a Quran in hand stood in front of a mosque in the middle of nationwide protests, vowing to use the military to quell demonstrations. But see, we've been taught to believe that that could never happen here. Trump can't be a fascist because the American people, the American political system, would never tolerate it. Thankfully, As Trump talks about invoking the Insurrection Act and declaring martial law and deploying tanks and bayonets against unarmed Americans, that naivety and complacency is now being challenged. Even Democratic members of Congress like Senator Ron Wyden and Representative Eric Swalwell use the F word to describe Trump and his remarks this week. The liberal economist and former cabinet member under Bill Clinton, Robert Reich, said, I have held off using the F word for three and a half years, but there is no longer any honest alternative. Trump is a fascist and he's promoting fascism in America. Some journalists have joined in. Here's CNN's Don Lemon speaking live on air. Open your eyes, America. Open your eyes. We are teetering on a dictatorship. But is this hyperbole or is it fact? Will the media continue to resist calling out Trump for what he is? And will this week's awful events, more so even than the events of Charlottesville and Trump's praise back then for neo-Nazis as very fine people, will this week's events come to be remembered by historians and by future generations as a fascist turning point in American history, as Trump's own Reichstag fire moment?
Alongside the social upheaval in American streets, a significant movement has percolated in the halls of our government's most rigid institution. A fundamental tension between executive authority and allegiance to the Constitution has prompted unprecedented soul-searching within the military, traditionally a stalwart for conservative values. It began with the president's notorious Bible photo op, preceded by a military crackdown north of the White House, clearing protesters from Lafayette Square. Several days later, General Mark Mealy, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, publicly renounced his role in enabling the June 1st incident. As many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week, I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. It was a mistake. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper also renounced the photo op and undercut the president's threat against protesters. Saying that he did not Mm -hmm. support the use of the Insurrection Act to put down civilian peaceful protests that were taking place across the country shortly after that photo op as well at St. John's Church. That's right. And we know that the president was really unhappy with Secretary Esper over those comments, uh, the public nature of them. And just before Trump's commencement speech at West Point, hundreds of alumni of the Military Academy signed an open letter urging new West Point graduates to approach future orders from the president, especially those concerning military force against civilians, with caution. According to Slate writer Fred Kaplan, such public insubordination from the general class down to the rank and file is highly unusual. Fred, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be there. Okay, this is not Barbara Streisand chastising the president. This is the military, which is nearly alone among American institutions, still accorded the respect of the broad public. This is serious business. Yeah, this is really a very big deal. I can't think of another case where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that is to say the senior U.S. military officer, has publicly apologized for standing next to the president of the United States in any forum or for any purpose, much less one that was stage-directed by the president. I can't think of another case where Something like a thousand West Point graduates have sent an open letter to the current graduating class where the president is about to give a commencement speech, urging them to keep their mind on constitutional principles and not what any particular president might say that's contrary to them. Nor can I even think of an example where a pretty heavy-hitting group of senior retired officers has criticized the president in public for certain policies, and in a couple of cases, the president himself for his character. This is a very big deal, and the generals who have done this know that it's a very big deal, and for that reason, did it very reluctantly. How do you define fascism? Who or what is a fascist? Because it's a widely used term and often used, admittedly, as a term of abuse by some on the left. 
I see fascism as a it's it's a one party state. It's a dictatorship. Classically, if we look at the original fascist regimes of Mussolini and Hitler, it's a system of organized violence um, with the left uh, as as one of its main targets. Also, other Jews and ethnic minorities. But this the the fact of organized violence, state organized violence, is very very important. This is classic fascism, which is associated with a one party state. But the techniques and the tools of fascism like propaganda and corruption they they um they can take different forms uh, they took different forms in the future up to today um so do you believe donald trump 45th president of the united states could be classified as a fascist or at least a wannabe fascist he so i personally don't use the term fascist for him in terms of if I have to do a one word identifier of him, I use the word authoritarian. The reason I do that is many people have an outdated uh, idea of what authoritarianism or fascism is, meaning that they, they think of uh, jackboots and they think of, uh, you know, immediate takeovers of government and one party states. So you get a lot of mail from people who say, well, here we have protesters, we have an opposition press. So what are you talking about? So in some, in some ways, although Donald Trump has many, many similarities to fascists, he has a leader cult, he, he uses repression and corruption. I prefer to call him an authoritarian, which fascism is a type of authoritarianism. Um, and because I believe it, it uh, is, is better suited because some people are lulled into thinking if we don't have a one party state today, we don't have fascism. And that's not actually true. Some Democrats, such as Elizabeth Warren, have attacked Trump for authoritarianism. Others, like Senator Ron Wyden, just straight up called his remarks on Monday fascist. Overall, though, Ruth, I feel like Democrats as a whole, including their presumptive presidential candidate Joe Biden and the liberal media as a whole, still, even now, don't quite take the authoritarian, the fascistic threat that Trump poses to American democracy seriously enough. They don't quite get it or want to get it. They don't recognize that he's probably not going to accept the election result in November. He's going to stoke more and more violence and division between now and November. Am I being unfair? No, this is a source of, as you can imagine, great frustration for me that a lot of the mainstream liberal politicians are in denial about this, um, as well as a lot of you know mainstream media outlets who will, for example, very often have American historians on uh, who can comment about what's Trump doing in, as opposed to, you know, in comparison to Nixon and American history. But they've been very reluctant to have on people who put Trump in a framework of authoritarianism. So they don't want to go there. And I think it's because it means that you have to come to terms with very unpleasant truths about America. And also the, the political climate that's been shaped by, in some ways, by both Democrats and Republicans. And a lot of people don't want to do that right now. And it's, and also if you start talking about authoritarianism, then you have to, you have to do something about it. Mm. It's been a very slow process for uh, Americans, both in government and outside of government, to accept this authoritarian framework. I was called, like many other people, alarmist and crazy, hysterical for many years. And even though many of us predicted exactly what's going to happen. So I think it's a question of a mentality shift. And I think it's sh it's changing a little bit now, but whether the uh, political elites are going to buy in um, and do something about it is remains to be seen. 
Uh, Ruth, you and I were messaging each other the other day about Trump, and you said, quote, the question is, what do people think fascism will look like today? It's not old school dictatorship. Explain to our listeners what you meant by that. Yeah, so... You know, in the, in the 20th century, fascism was a, it was about one party states, the complete suppression of elections, the complete suppression of any political opposition and opposition press. Today, it works differently. Uh, many, uh, I call them new authoritarians and they, they're, they're many variants and every ruler finds his own formula, but you have, you know, from Putin to Orban to Erdogan and Today, they don't always do away with opposition parties. They also retain elections or some semblance of, of elections, but they manipulate them through fraud and uh, voter suppression and things that go on in this country too. Um, to, they use these kind of what used to be democratic institutions to maintain themselves in power. And they keep a pocket of opposition, as Putin does. So if we try and pigeonhole today's rulers into the fascist framework, it, it doesn't work very well. So what I like to do is look at these kind of the, the authoritarian toolkit yes. that they use, violence, corruption, virility, and look at how these tools have evolved over a hundred years, because they're using the same things. Putin, you know, still eliminates his, uh, opposition. He poisons people. He puts people into, you know, penal colonies. But he doesn't suppress 100% opposition, and he still has some kind of veneer of elections. Yeah. And what's what's frustrating for me following this as a non-scholar is you have scholars like Robert Paxton, author of The Anatomy of Fascism, who says, Trump's not a fascist. Don't call him a fascist. He's more plutocratic than fascist, he says. Uh, Roger Griffin, the Oxford historian, author of The Nature of Fascism, told Business Insider this week, and I quote, somebody who is totally erratic and has no ultimate vision is and is basically knee-jerking all the time. It's almost a misuse of the term to flatter them with a political science term because it gives their behavior a sort of Machiavellian subtlety which it lacks in the case of Trump. And I just worry because, as you mentioned, he has a lot of the ingredients of what we would call fascism or at least authoritarianism. And are we getting hung up uh, with, you know, the literal use of the word and ignoring the fact that he fits the model and the mold? Yes, I, I think you're I think you're right. And in the case of Griffin, this smacks of not taking him seriously. Indeed. And Griffin Griffin would know that, you know, Mussolini and Hitler were called buffoons. They yes. were called madmen. People didn't take them seriously and or they were bewitched by them. There's lots of, you know, documentation of American journalists uh, being bamboozled by them because the one thing that they have in common, all these leaders, is that they're seducers. They know how to treat the press. They're, they're marketers, they're journalists in their own fashion, and they know how to manipulate people to get them to accept their own vision of reality. And that includes foreign journalists or yes. sometimes historians. I, I, I mean, in, in, terms of the, in terms of the Hitler comparisons, for example, Richard J. Evans, uh, who's one of the world's experts on Nazi Germany, as you know, he said last year, if Hitler's rise teaches us anything. It's that the establishment trivializes demagogues at its peril. And that line really resonated with me because, as you know, the New York Times, when they reported on Hitler back in the 1920s, they were saying stuff like, oh, he doesn't really have a vision. He doesn't know what he wants. His anti-Semitism isn't as, quote, genuine or violent as it sounds. That's what the New York Times said in 1922. And we all know how that worked out. Yeah. And here we go back to this question of, of human denial, of what, not wanting to see what's in front of you. And when we go back to the origins of fascism, it's, we don't, we don't forgive, I don't forgive any of these people nor excuse them. But in the case of Italy, you could see that 
some people at the very beginning didn't really know what to make of Mussolini because he was doing something new. He was writing a template, laying down a template. We know better now. And yet, um, in this, doing this book, which goes over a hundred years, it's really striking how human nature leads people to make the same errors. And one of them is, as we said, not taking them seriously. Another is believing that when they get into office, they will calm down. Yes. They will normalize. They will become like regular politicians and they can be controlled. And this is, this was the logic of, uh, not only the famous cases of, uh, the Italian elites and the German elites who let in the fascists, but, um, I found in the case of the Pinochet coup in Chile where, you know, it was a coup, so it was a fait accompli. But there were many Christian Democrats who were, uh, became, later became big op opposers who actually thought that Pinochet was going to quote, restore order and then return the country to democracy. So in, in the case of Trump, there was a name for this uh, delusion called pivot. The idea was that we, yes. <laughs> that Trump was going to pivot to becoming. Uh, Today's the day he yes. becomes president. Yes. Remember that? So, Today's the day. Yes, the allied thing was <laughs> that um, he has finally become presidential. And uh, this drove me and continues to drive me completely crazy because there, it, it's a, a total lack of understanding of who this man is and what his goals are. We've just heard clips today, starting with Throughline, taking us way back into the history of policing to explain that it's been about maintaining racial hierarchy from the beginning. Democracy Now! explained that policing, even before police, was about controlling populations to extract their labor. Tom Hartman spoke with Dr. Jacova Williams, who explained the definition of lynching and that it fits George Floyd's death perfectly. Code Switch, in two parts, exposed the age-old trope of the outside agitator. Democracy Now! spoke with Carol Anderson about the Red Scare of 1919. Behind the Bastards discussed the policing training program that teaches cops to always fear for their lives and to kill without thinking. The Daily Show demonstrated how the police uphold the gang-style code of silence better than their directive to protect and serve. In the Thick highlighted an article that described the uprising the way we would write about it if it were in another country. Intercepted connected the dots between our racist violent past and the racist violent present that Trump embodies so well. The Ezra Klein Show spoke with Ta-Nehisi Coates about the dynamics of Trump being president at this time in history. On the media pointed out that military leaders took what was a major step for them to publicly rebuke Trump's desire to use the military against civilian populations. And finally, we just heard it deconstructed in two parts discussing the obvious authoritarian tendencies Trump has and the need to call them out as such so that they can be responded to appropriately. Members are going to be getting a bonus episode that really is basically a full bonus episode. There is a lot more to say about the evolution of our policing system, including the role of agent provocateurs, the militarization of police, the connection of all of it to the role of U.S. empire, and more. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which usually includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. 
Now, finally, I just want to finish up by uh, saying thanks for, for bearing with me uh, and the show. I mean, everyone's world has been turned upside down, uh, yours included, I am sure. So for me, the, you know, the schedule of the show has changed. The format has even changed to sort of bizarrely compensate for that in, in a way. Um, I, and there have been no complaints. So I if if you are uh, you know secretly aggravated but not complaining uh, it, i i take that as a sign that you know we're all in a forgiving mood these days my, myself included so you know besides general upheaval uh, i mentioned uh, previously that we had un- up until recently a production assistant who was helping with the show helping a lot with the show <laughs> helping keep the show on a good schedule and helping me maintain my uh you know mental health at the same time and when he got an offer for a full-time gig with his other part-time work uh, obviously I, we couldn't stand in the way of that um, but as i've been saying since before the the beginning of this year when when i talked about our sort of financial uncertainties the uh, the loss of ad revenue that we have absolutely been experiencing all this year it didn't feel like the right time to hire a new person in his place when our assistant left and uh, and and so we're in this weird position where it's not just the coronavirus it's not just financial uncertainty but uh, you know our our production capacity has actually been impacted beyond just the chaos swirling around us that makes it hard for everyone to do the work that they would normally be able to do. And, uh, you know, and, and so just as an example, I, I was looking through our uh, Patreon cancellations to, to sort, sort of uh, dig into how things have been going. And so there have been approximately 30 cancellations in the last couple of months, two and a half months or so, just based on their financial situation changing. There have been more cancellations than that for other reasons, but 30 cancellations just saying I've, you know, either my financial situation has changed or specifically COVID-19 has impacted me and my financial situation has changed. And so, you know, as, as I have been saying, we, we are in the same situation that everyone is financial precarity hanging over all of our heads. So I, I just want to point out, if you have the uh, the capacity, the interest, the willingness to sign up and support us, now is a great time. I mean, it's it's not a great time to start a fundraising campaign. I know that, and uh, I and I am not the most needy person in the world. So take all of that into consideration, and uh, and if you feel like supporting the show, we would really appreciate it. When I was looking through cancellations, one stood out, you know, people have the opportunity to leave a little message explaining why they're canceling. And one person wrote, I got tired of not being able to control the playback speed of the bonus content, because when you sign up on Patreon, you get a special feed that includes all the regular episodes plus bonus episodes. And they wrote, it takes too long to listen to podcasts on Patreon. I have things to do. Well, let me tell you, friend, I hear you. I would never have chosen to use Patreon if they didn't support third-party podcast players. So whether you are a current patron of the show, a former patron of the show like this person, or someone who's thinking of signing up, just know when you sign up through Patreon, that sign-up process and, and getting your new podcast feed set up is 
pretty much the only interaction you have to have with Patreon. Everything else, you would experience it just like a regular podcast in the third-party app of your choice. There are a few, uh, like a Google Podcasts and Stitcher, that don't allow you to do that, and that isn't something we can't do anything about, but the vast majority of third-party podcast apps uh, out there, including you know Apple Podcasts, the big ones, they allow you to put the Patreon feed right into your podcast app and listen to it just like you would listen to literally any other podcast. And as someone who listens to the majority of my podcasts at three times normal speed, I feel your pain. I would never listen to the bonus content of a show if I was forced to listen at single speed. I, I, like you, I got things to do. So if you are interested in signing up, that URL again is patreon.com slash bestofleft, and it is prominently displayed right in the show notes of the show, probably wherever you're listening, you'll, you could click on it right from there. And, and just to, just again, Thanks for, you know, bearing with us through all of this, uh, you know, upheaval and things being different and the schedule being different and uh, all of those sorts of things. Maybe your life is so chaotic like mine is that you, you don't even notice. But I, I just wanted to give you guys an update on uh, where I am and how things are going. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks, as always, to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size through Patreon. That is absolutely how the program survives. No kidding about that at all. That is more true now than it has ever been. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you as often as we are able, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com.